Hello, Remakers. It's Millie in the interview chair today, and I am so lucky to have Sophie Howe as my guest. Now, Sophie is the outgoing Future Generations Commissioner for the country of Wales, and her role has been to act as the guardian for the interests of future generations and to support the public bodies listed in the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act to work towards achieving the wellbeing goals. So basically, for the past seven years, Sophie's job has been to inspire, support, cajole and question public bodies and individuals to make sure that the work that they are doing actually goes towards supporting social and environmental wellbeing for the people of Wales now and into the future. In essence, she was empowered with a legal position to be the supportive moral conscience of a nation. I mean, small job there, right? So Sophie and I had a chat about exactly what her work was, how it came about, and what might be possible for Australia. to be here this afternoon with Sophie Howe, who's just finished up as the Welsh Commissioner for Future Generations. It's a bit of a mouthful there, but a very important role. Um, and Sophie, I've heard you talk before about saying that your role as the Commissioner was to be a coach, a mentor, and the legislated conscience of future generations. So you were mandated, as you said, to call out the madness of short-term thinking, to hold the hands of those trying to do things differently, and to speak out when decisions seem to be being made that actually went against the interest of future generations. The work sounds amazing, and I'm just imagining, like, what is it like to kind of carry that moral burden of being the conscience <laughs> of future generations? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest. I mean, it was, it was a job that you know, well, when you're a kid, you don't envisage yourself being a future generations commissioner. I mean, you know, they didn't exist today. So, but I, I suppose my, my sort of passions and interests have always been like public service reform. And I, and I suppose, you know, I take a lot of my lived ex experience with me um, in, in that regard. So it was kind of my perfect job. Um, and I was so delighted to be appointed, but then I did have, you know, utter terror <laughs> of thinking, oh God, uh, how how are we going to do this? Because it's such a big transformation. And I've, you know, worked in different roles in government and public policy in different parts of the public sector all my life. Um, and I know how difficult it is to turn the tanker of kind of, you know, short-term, siloed public policy making and, and so on. Um, and, you know, I suppose a lot of pressure being on, you know, this new role that was created, but also, you know, such a pressure in terms of, the challenges that we're facing are absolutely huge and, you know, catastrophic, <laughs> existential, whatever big word you want to use, they're all of the above. Um, and so, yeah, I did have a number of sleepless nights thinking, God, how, how are we going to actually, or how am I going to do this? And then, you know, I sort of, um, you know, gave myself a bit of a shake and said, you know, it's not your sole responsibility to try and like <laughs> transform the, the way that, you know, the whole of public policy in Wales is done um and then you know you get into your your stride and and you feel and you find that actually like most things this is about i suppose inspiring it's about um relationships and bringing people with you um it's about you know compelling and clear arguments um and it's about navigating political systems and you know trying to take advantage of you know the right thing at the right moment and and so on which is you know I suppose the sort of stuff that I've done all my career. Mm. I mean it's interesting thinking about morals and conscience in the Australian context you know we've just had the robo debt the findings of the robo debt royal commission come out and there's a lot of failings of of morality I think there. The thing that's so fascinating to me is that your position was actually legislated so you were given a, a formal legal role to be the, the conscience. Can you just we might backtrack a bit and give our listeners a bit of an idea of like, so a future generations commissioner and a future generations act, like how did this come about in Wales and, and what is it? Yeah. 
So Wales has had quite a long um, history with sustainable development. In fact, when the Government of Wales Act was passed, which established the Welsh Parliament and, and, and Government in 1999 after a, a referendum, um, there was a clause in the Government of Wales Act which said um, sustainable development should be a central organising principle of the government. So, you know, that, that's, that was quite um, progressive at the time and, and ambitious, but, um, you know, whether you and I'm sure many of your listeners will have worked in you know public services and public policy um, and so on actually you know those lofty ambitions very rarely turn into anything what it actually meant is that the um the environment minister was asked you know was bringing a report to the, the senate the parliament once a year um being asked about you know reporting on stuff that had happened which was you know vaguely related to sustainable development we certainly couldn't say that sustainable development was a central organizing principle and i had worked in government as an advisor to um, two of our first ministers and had been on the receiving end of phone calls saying, oh, you know, can you, you know, can you tell us stuff that the minister can put in this report or that report or, you know, and I know exactly how the system um, works. And so that particular minister, Jane Davidson, um, was really frustrated that that was happening. She's a real passionate advocate um, uh, for sustainability. And she'd actually, um, you know, gone out of her way to travel to different parts of the world to see where the best practice was, was happening. Um, and she was also quite a force of nature. And she managed to convince the then first minister that there wasn't, um, you know, enough happening. We weren't meeting up to this requirement to make sustainable development a central organising principle so that we should legislate specifically for sustainable development to put specific duties not only on the government but on the rest of the public sector in Wales um, and you know interestingly funnily <laughs> however you might describe it she actually convinced him that that would go in the manifesto Labour won that election um, and she actually retired from politics at that election so the new government were left with this thing um, they'd agreed to had been in their manifesto had been an election pledge but it was her baby and she was no longer around um, and as it happened you know it could have gone two ways it could have completely flocked you know she they they didn't have that kind of ownership and real champion in government um, actually what happened is they put a really bright team of civil servants um, on the legislation and um, and the, uh, a number of M NGOs um, and you know voluntary sector organizations many of them environmental organizations and so on really saying there's a real opportunity here so started working with the government to try and shape what this would look like and then convinced the government that actually if you don't know exactly what it should be if you don't know what you know sustainable development should look like and what the goals are because this is just before the SDGs were in place let's ask the citizens of Wales so that's what they did they held a national dialogue with the citizens of Wales called the Wales we want um, and it posed the question what's the Wales you want to leave behind to your children your grandchildren and, and future generations to come and from that also looking another bit of luck I suppose the SDGs in development at the time um, we looked at what the SDGs were saying what the people of Wales said and crafted all of that together into um, seven long-term well-being goals for Wales which were then set out in the law so set out in the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act with duties on all of our public institutions so that's the government our local authorities our health institutions um, and so on to set objectives which maximize their contribution to all seven of the those long-term goals and that's the first well there's two game changers I think for Wales which are perhaps lessons to other countries there first off um we've got a vision for Wales that we want in the future um and you've probably heard you know you've probably heard me say this um that it's you know, you wouldn't think it was revolutionary for a country to have a long-term vision, <laughs> but it's completely revolutionary. Um, most countries operate from one electoral cycle to the next. And, you know, in the context of Australia, that's a complete nightmare because it's three years. What on earth can you get done in three years? And is it any wonder, therefore, that we don't tackle climate change? We're not prepared for the aging population. We're not on top of, you know, the um, impacts of AI and, um, and so on. So those long-term goals, really, really important, a vision for the country um, that we're trying to achieve. Then the requirements that each one of those institutions must take action to meet all seven of the goals. So that requires them to 
to work beyond their traditional boundaries. So it's not like saying, here's the goal of a healthier Wales, which is one of the goals, off it goes to the National Health Service, or here's the goal of a resilient Wales, which is about ecological resilience, enhancing and maintaining nature and biodiversity, or that's a job for natural resources Wales. What we know is that all of these things are interconnected, and half the problems that we have now are well, because we don't think long term, but also because we've got, you know, the economy minister not sufficiently focusing on the environment and doing things in the economy, which are damaging the environment. We've got a healthcare system which is doing very similar. On the one hand, um, you know, planetary health is the biggest threat or one of the biggest threats to human health. On the other hand, the healthcare system as a sector globally, if it was a country, it would be the fifth biggest emitter of carbon. So this duty to require them to join up um, and think and act beyond their boundaries is kind of really critical. There's um, two other um, particular areas that the Act uh, covers, which is um, it sets out, I suppose, what we describe as a kind of toolkit for the ways in which we should work called the sustainable development principle in the law and that is the public bodies have to demonstrate how they've considered the long-term impact of the things that they do how they're seeking to prevent problems from occurring or from getting worse how they're integrating their actions this is recognizing these sort of connections collaborating with each other and involving citizens and then finally it establishes a future generations commissioner um, whose role is to um, both advise and support those public bodies on the steps that they should be taking to, tr to try and achieve those long-term goals and also to monitor and assess the progress um, that is made. That's the kind of um, official line of what a commissioner should do. <laughs> what I actually ended up doing <laughs> um, was a lot, uh, a lot of introducing civil servants to each other across different departments to try and get them to join up, banging heads together when people weren't collaborating, um, you know, constantly saying what future trends have you applied to this policy area? Have you considered foresighting in this respect? All of those sorts of things. And often, you know, just publicly sometimes publicly challenging and, and other times, you know, going into government and internally challenging and saying, right, I can't show me, show me your work in, show me how you've applied the Future Generations Act to this. When I first heard you talk, I've got so many questions and so many rabbit holes to go down. But when you first, when I first heard about what it is that you do, I just thought what an extraordinary job that you you get to be the person to ask the questions and that you have this public institutions, you know, the public service, et cetera, kind of having to at least listen to those questions if, and then sort of talk their way and show their way out of it. I want to come back to that cross-siloed stuff in a minute, but just going back to that visioning piece. So at Australia Remade, about five years ago, we did a big project where we asked Australians, you know, imagine you've woken up in the country of your dreams. What does it look like, feel like, smell like? And it was extraordinary at that moment because people kind of looked at us like, oh, well, uh, I don't know. You know, we were out of practice at saying what we wanted. And it was such a, a you know, affirming thing to do. And we found that, the you know, we've got nine pillars, um, but that people really shared at, at the heart of it, shared a, a vision. Now, we didn't have the backing of government to do this. I think there's potential to take it much bigger than we did, like you did in Wales. But, you know, you, you said vision as one of the first important things there. It's often not just, it's often dismissed as not real work. Like, I love your thoughts yeah. on what, yeah. why is this essential and, and, and how, how did it fit? Well, I, I mean, I agree with you. It's sort of, you know, if, if you just stepped out of, you know, the reality that we sort of operate in and just pose that question, why does nobody ever ask citizens what it is that they kind of want in the future or what they think the future um, should look like? Everything is almost by chance in a way or the market controls things or um you know particular decisions are taken on the basis of the political ideology at the time which doesn't sort of look and play out what that might mean in the long term so you know future generations are definitely discounted in in that sense um but we know also that we've got this massive problem with decline in trust in government we've got massive issues in terms of polarization i was looking at some really interesting stuff today i'm doing some work 
with um, an organization called LIN, who are a communications organization who specialize in identifying threats around mis and disinformation um, and the massive consequences that that can have on, um, on society. And um, some of the um, analysis that they've been doing was looking at actually those countries who are um, happier, who have a greater sense of well-being and where their indicators show that citizens are more kind of content, if you like, um, have much fewer problems in terms of mis- and div- disinformation, in terms of polarisation and greater trust in government. So it's really interesting uh, all of those connections. But I think that, you know, one of the ways that governments can help to restore some of this trust is just is by having regular dialogue with their citizens and doing some of this visioning piece and asking them what matters to them, not just assuming that everyone will care about GDP and that should be the only measure that we should worry about. Um, you know, when you talk to people, and I, th- I think people come up with a greater sense of things which are relevant to their well-being rather than their needs so even if we're not talking about GDP we're talking in in the UK certainly about hospital waiting lists and housing waiting lists and those things and and they are all really important but if I asked you or anyone really what is it that matters to you you probably say to me it's family it's relationships um, you know, the things that make me feel happy are being able to, you know, walk outside and bump into a neighbour and have a chat. And I love the trees in the area that I live. And I love the fact that we've got local shops and still a greengrocer, an independent greengrocer who sells, you know, you can buy your fruit and veg from. All of those things are kind of really important. And we never really pose that question to citizens and we definitely never ask them to envisage you know what sort of future would you like to create with us mm. and you had a huge response didn't you 10,000 yeah about 10,000 small country um, it's, yeah, yeah yeah um and and it was you know it was interesting in terms of the ways in which we engage. So there were lots of it. We sort of described, I suppose, as a hub and spoke model. So it was sponsored by and funded by the government, but run by um, an NGO. And that NGO worked in partnership with a range of others to reach out to different communities. So um, some communities held their own geographical conversations. So the Wales we want became the Senechi we want or the Cardiff we want. Um, and the young farmers held their conversations throughout all of their membership groups. And the Women's Institute did the same. And different schools were holding their conversations amongst pupils who were doing things like writing postcards to their future selves or constructing their ideal, um, you know, future towns using Minecraft. And, you know, there's quite a lot of innovative um, there were a lot of ice cream um, parlours in the um, ideal futures on towns well, I'm on all ice cream parlours. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think, yeah, that quality of engagement and I'm thinking about, you know, some of the things you're saying about having to learn to work across silos and out of that blanket approach. And talking to community gets you out of silos very quickly because the timing's out, people are slower, faster, they want to yeah. give you data in different ways. So an interesting yeah. kind of yeah. practice of that. Um, and I just wanted to read out the the seven that you came up with in the end, which was a prosperous Wales, a resilient Wales, a healthier Wales, a more equal Wales, a Wales of cohesive communities, a Wales of vibrant culture and thriving Welsh, Welsh language, and a globally responsible Wales. And I can't imagine anyone was against any of those things. No, no. And, and, and that's, um, it's a question I get asked all the time. In fact, you know, I've just left Sydney. I was in in, um, in Sydney for a day uh, yesterday talking with um, various people from um, the University of Technology and I met with some ministers and um, some journalists and so on. Um, and the question I'm often asked is, well, how did you get everyone to agree? And, you know, what? Well, and actually, do you know, I, I don't think it's that difficult. I think we kind of overcomplicate things. If we were posing a question around, you know, should we keep this hospital open or should we close it? Obviously, you know, people get really kind of... Uh, 
you know, get into a lot of angst about those sorts of things. But actually, when you pose quite open questions about the future and you do it in a way um, which is really focused on, you know, what sort of ancestor do you want to be? um, You get more into the kind of core values, if you like. And what we see from across the world where countries are developing wellbeing frameworks, quality of life indices um, and so on, the same themes come up all the time and it is community. It is about, um, you know, nature and protecting our natural assets. It is about, um, you know, uh, health, but not, you know, and, and there are differences between the global south and the global north. Obviously, in the global south, we are talking about more more about access to, to health care. But in the global um, in the global north, you know, health really we need to be shifting into those kind of wider determinants um and on the things that help to keep us well in the first place rather than just step in when when we're ill um and also um really strongly from our conversation with citizens came the importance of culture and heritage and our language um and again you see that reflected in many places although that's not reflected in the sdgs which i think is quite interesting i think is an omission Uh, And I know, you know, thinking about what I've seen in Australia and what's going on at the moment with the with the voice um, and, you know, I'm I'm meeting some um, some indigenous leaders uh, here in, in, in New Zealand while I'm here and already just arriving in New Zealand for about half an hour. I can feel the importance of their culture and their heritage. It's everywhere. So it's that softer stuff, really, which is the stuff that makes life worthwhile. Yeah, and I was really struck listening to your John Menager oration when you were out in Australia recently with Centre for Policy Development. You were talking about the history of Wales and, you know, Wales had been at the forefront of the coal trade. I think the first million-dollar deal for coal was signed in Wales. And thinking about how that process of collectively uh, creating a new forward-looking identity that doesn't ignore the past. You know, thinking in Australia, you know, coal mining, fossil fuels, there's a lot of communities where that's really key to identity. Um, and I love the way that you were talking about that as, great, that was a wonderful chapter, where next? And and that, that softer stuff about who we are, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, I, you know, there's there's a lot of history there and, and actually, you know, a lot of positive history for communities obviously we now know um about the environmental damage that um that that was doing um but also a lot of negative history for communities there when the coal mines shut and you know they shut very quickly that was a political decision um at the time under the thatcher government and that decimated communities and there for me is a real like lesson in the need for long-term planning it's the same lesson that should be being deployed in australia now you know we cannot carry on, um, you know, ex- extracting and taking and taking um, more than our fair share of the world's resources. And we know that Australia is what we're using about 4.6 times um, yeah. more than its fair share of the, the world's resources. So that is just not sustainable. And the planet, you know, we are on the brink of planetary collapse. The other side of that is, of course, there are jobs and livelihoods and communities and so on, which are linked to that. So it's got to be the role of government to start focusing on a transition away from that. How do we, you know, create some sort of safety net? What does that look like in terms of how we um, we envisage those communities in, in, in the future? What sort of things do we need to be doing now to reskill in different areas and, um, and so on? Um, but the problem problems emerge when governments don't do mm. that long-term planning and, and in Wales you know we paid the price for that through the closure of our, our minds um, and our pits with nothing else for people to do. Mm. So like key part is vision and national story another key part you talked about is that cross-siloed and long-term which you've just started to talk about then so you've got a legislated position um, and your job, I think you said your job is to connect people and bang heads together sometimes. Um, you know, I imagine that was quite frustrating. Doesn't say that in the law, but that's what I ended up doing. <laughs> they, yeah. they didn't have that written in a, one specific piece. Um, well, 3.4, she shall bang heads together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, <laughs> I can imagine that was frustrating. Um, yeah, so how, how did that 
work in practice and what are some of the examples of where you really saw, you know, I think cross silo work is really foreign to a lot of us um, and not just foreign, but structurally difficult. Um, <laughs> yeah. How did, how did you manage that? How did that play out? Yeah. Um, so I think in the, in the early, so the, the, you know, the act has been enforced just over seven years now um, in the early phases of, of the act, we were seeing, um, you know, because there are particular duties, um, public bodies have to write plans, they have to set well-being objectives, they have to do well-being assessments, all of these different things. And in a way, that is absolutely the comfort zone of our public institutions. They love a strategy or a plan. And, you know, basically what they were doing is um, writing their strategies and plans and using well-being words to describe what they were already doing, thinking that that was enough. Um and so a lot of the, that early phase was saying, OK, in your plan, you've got here that you're going to, um, you know, reduce rates of obesity and take a preventative approach to reducing rates of obesity. You've got another objective um, which says that you need to improve connectivity between your communities. Maybe there's something there <laughs> about reducing obesity whilst also improving connectivity through investment in public transport, walking and cycling routes, um, you know, how can we build that in? And so bit by bit, small things started to happen. Um, there was um, someone in Cardiff, uh, a public health consultant who was uh, seconded into the council to help develop the transportation strategy. And that was really interesting. It was sort of exactly on that issue. So he worked out things like, actually, in Cardiff, between us in the health boards, the local authority, the university, you know, all those kind of public institutions, we've got thousands and thousands of staff who are driving to work every day. Well, one of the first things we can do is actually support them to have alternative routes. So, um, you know, cycle to work schemes and um, uh, public transport transits between different sites and so on, some really simple stuff. Then he started going into the city and looking, well, um, where are the areas with the highest levels of air pollution and the lowest levels of life expectancy? And what are the factors there? You know, and some of that, some of them are about uh, health conditions where physical activity would, you know, would would have a preventative effect. So how can we target those areas for um, active travel investment? And whilst we're doing that, how can we join that goal up, which is the goal of a healthier Wales and the goal of more equal Wales, because we're talking about health inequalities here, with the goal of more resilient Wales, because when we build our cycle tracks, we'll build them using green infrastructure. So we'll build them using nature. We'll bring nature back to communities. Um, and so in the early phases, it was people like him that was you know that was Dr Tom Porter who was then joined by um, a, another guy in the council Ian Titherington who's an engineer who started saying well actually we could green this community whilst we're doing all of this and they it was a bit like I heard someone describe something yesterday actually as like um, you know when a snowball goes down a, a mountain and it gets bigger it was kind of like that Someone was coming up with a good idea using the future generations framework. Other, they were bringing other people in, all of these people that I described as frustrated champions, people who've been in the system perhaps for a long time, think the system's crazy, picking up the pieces of all the stuff that the crazy system and all the problems that the crazy system causes, um, but had no power to challenge the system and change the system. And the Future Generations Act gave them that, you know, that permission, if you like, to challenge the system. So that's where you know, really the innovation started to come because if you just have a law, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to change anything. There are laws about all sorts of things and a lot of them just require you to write plans and, you know, do monitoring and, and, and so on. This is about getting people excited and inspired about the possibilities and then having some sort of, you know, policing infrastructure. I don't really like that term, but um, some sort of infrastructure in the commissioner's office who are going to sort of, you know, support the innovation to happen, help people to break down the barriers where it's not happening um, and try to inspire that change. So was the, the one, there was the legislation which said you have to think about this stuff. And two, there was you in your office who could say, yeah, awesome, keep going. You're not on your own. Yeah. You're not mad. Yeah. Like, have mm -hmm. you thought about this person doing this? Yeah, like two yeah. really key pieces there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on the transport theme, I've also heard you talk about um, the moratorium on road, new roads in Wales. And I think that's a really interesting example 
to talk about. Yeah, and that, and that was, you know, that was quite a big um, example. The first big test of the legislation on a, you know, a national, quite, you know, uh, public, uh, public issue. So the government had plans, um, and this was, you know, it was problematic for a number of reasons. So they had plans to spend the entire of their borrowing capacity on building a 13-mile stretch of motorway to deal with a problem of congestion um, on one of our main motorways, um, the M4, by um, one of our cities called Newport. And um, that had been, you know, an age-old problem of congestion. The problem is what we know, you know, internationally, all the evidence tells us is that if we just keep building roads, we just keep filling the roads because we don't give anyone any alternative to do anything other than use the, the road. And Wales has actually had historically some of the lowest levels of investment in public transport across the UK. So it's no wonder that, you know, there are no other solutions. So I intervened in that issue and asked the government to explain to me how they'd apply the Future Generations Act to their to their policy choice there. And this went to a public inquiry. So I asked the government to explain to me how it was in line with the goal of more prosperous Wales, which talks about a productive, innovative, low carbon society. You know, how is this in line with our carbon targets then and um, and that goal? How is it in line with the goal of a more resilient Wales, which is about, you know, nature? It was going through a nature reserve, this road. Um, how is it in line with the goal of a healthier Wales? We've got increasing rates of obesity. We've got illegal levels of air pollution. So how is building a road and spending, you know, spending the entire of your borrowing capacity building a road going to help any of that? Um, and how how have you considered the goal of more equal Wales? Because 25% of the lowest income families in that region don't own a car. So um, are you seriously saying you're going to spend the entire of the country's borrowing capacity on a programme, on, on, on a bit of infrastructure that only benefits the already better off? And to cut a long story short, the government had real difficulty in justifying and explaining that. So I was basically holding a mirror to them and saying, well, you've passed this legislation. You now explain it to me. You show me your workings out. Um, to cut a long story short, they changed their minds. Um, the public inquiry recommended that the road should go ahead and the first minister changed his mind because I, you know, they were struggling to justify how it was in line with the Future Generations Act. Um, then um, they set up a commission to look at alternatives. So the alternatives in line with the Future Generations Act, so the alternatives that they came up with um, was more public transport and so on and so on. Um, I then intervened because there were 55 then. Uh, other road schemes on the government's books, which had been approved and were just, you know, waiting the sort of um, finance to take forward. So I said, right, and you need to explain all of these to me now because you've got these duties under the Future Generations Act. So how have you applied this to these and what alternatives have you considered? Um, and I scrutinised their budget every year and I said, show me how you're applying the Future Generations Act to your spending decisions. Because what I can see is that on the one hand, you just declared a climate emergency in 2019 and then your budget in 2020 is spending two thirds of its infrastructure investment funding on building roads. So you need to explain to me how those two things are compatible and how you've applied the Future Generations Act to those spending decisions. And it's really, you know, it's quite a commonsensical kind of, you know, argument in a way and asking them to explain that. So what we saw then was a big shift in funding. So a reduction went down from two thirds on roads to a third with that difference going into public transport and active travel, active travel going up from five million pounds investment to 75 million pounds um, investment and then the moratorium on road building so a pause on all 55 of those road building schemes and every one of them um, reviewed in line with the Future Generations Act and 51 of them cancelled permanently so that's the difference that a Future Generations Act can make it also requires political leadership and political bravery because you know all the people and all the politicians who signed up to declaring a climate emergency not all of them thinks that that climate emergency applies when it might be the road in their patch that they wanted is not going to go ahead so there are still these challenges yeah I'm just like it's blowing my mind hearing what you're talking about because I'm sure this wasn't the case but I'm sort of imagining Sophie standing up against you know the, the kind of capitalist neoliberal development approach to to roads and imagining trying to imagine something like that happening here and how vulnerable someone like you might be in that position to well pretty yeah. serious 
criticism despite it being legislated and at your formal job, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, I, I you know, I had some horrible times with the with the business community and, you know, horrible press and they were calling for my resignation and um, and, and so on. And um, rather unfortunately, I'd um, agreed to be the um, after dinner speaker at the um, awards for Constructing Excellence Wales um, that happened to fall on the Friday after the M4 motorway had been cancelled on the Wednesday. Um, so you can imagine at that event, I was not the most popular after dinner speaker. Yes, in, fact, got, in fact, I got booed and heckled and hissed and and, and all sorts. But, um, you know, I suppose the difference in my role, I'm not elected, so I'm not worried and I'm not having to... Um, bow to you know populism really my job is to be or was to be the advocate for future generations um and so that gives you you know a certain amount of security but we have to find ways and positions of taking on these vested interests um because otherwise we just keep doing the same things and and sort of I don't know, this, we'll have to come up with a term for this. It's not greenwashing, it's something washing. Um, you know, sort of claiming that we're 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 gonna get different answers and we're just not, are we? We're yeah. not, not gonna get different outcomes. Yeah. I really love like the road example is such a good one because it's so big and it's so visual and it's about construction. I also love, I think you were saying in one of your speeches about uh the role of local post offices and local green yeah. places and I love that because that's a tiny community example of the the public good in practice. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that um, you know, th- there are there are all of these different sort of pockets of things that are happening in line with the Future Generations Act. So Monmouthshire Council, which is in a you know a rural part of of Wales, um, post offices in many of our rural communities, are, are, you know, are often the you know the lifeblood of, of that community and. Um, I often think of them, in fact, there's some something really interesting which is happening in Germany now in some of the supermarkets. They're um, introducing these things called, called slow lanes. I don't know if you've seen them. So this is where people can go and have a chat where you're not, you know, having all your shopping chucked down the conveyor belt and, you know, get out as fast as you can. But where people can actually go and have a chat because maybe they're lonely. Maybe that's the only other person that they might see that day or that week. And so post offices are, you know, are in that kind of category. So Monmouthshire Council actually, when when one of their post offices was threatened with closure, they recognised this and they had priorities in their wellbeing plan around tackling loneliness and isolation. There's lots of other things that they're doing, but they were like, well, actually, this we now need to do something different. We need to protect that. So they actually, they became the first local authority to buy a post office and to run a post office, um, not just so that we can, you know, send birthday cards to Great Auntie Jean or what have you, which I'm sure, you know, people still like to do, but actually because it's that, you know, part of the community fabric. And then we see hospitals, for example, who were not far from me, who... Um, took a decision instead of selling off a piece of land that they had available for development, um, they used the Future Generations Act to say, no, we could use this land to, to meet our wellbeing goals and to meet wellbeing objectives. So they're using it for therapeutic interventions in nature. They're using it to reconnect people with nature. They are um, putting in community food growing in there as a way of tackling food poverty, which we all know has a clear link to health. They're working with an organisation called Down to Earth to build a community sort of facility on that um, on that land around the um, the nature and the allotments and and so on. And that facility is being built through sustainable construction methods, um, training up kids who've been in the criminal justice system, um, people who've had brain injuries, and so on. So you get people that in itself is a health intervention. You know, it might not be that you're sat in a hospital ward having a treatment or you're sitting in a doctor's surgery being issued with a prescription. But that is that is holistic health care. Um, and that's the shift that we need to see across the board. Yeah. And I, I really love that there's recognition that community and connection is a key part of 
well-being. I mean, it's pretty obvious. In some of the work we've done, the the key, the three key things that we've heard people say are they want to care, to care and be cared for. They want to connect to people and place and they want to be able to contribute locally and nationally. And, you know, it's simple but beautiful. Yeah. You know, we have such a different context in Australia to Wales, I think, Um, similarities and differences. I know you've spent quite a lot of time in Australia in the the last few months, Mm -hmm. and I know there's a lot of interest for this kind of thing. Um, We have a different context, but I wonder, like, what's your take on what's possible here? And, you know, what are the lessons that you think Australia particularly needs to listen to if, if we wanted to try something like this? Well, look, I mean, I think that there's, you know, been a big shift, hasn't there, in, in the last, um, you know, 18 months in terms of the politics of, of Australia. And I, and I think, you know, some of the, I'm not saying everything is absolutely perfect and rosy, of course it's not, but um, I think, you know, there are far fewer now um, of those, you know, prominent voices, should we say, who are climate deniers and, um, and, and, and so on. And... Um, I think it's really encouraging that the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, is um, seeking to implement a a wellbeing budget. And, you know, when I was, uh, you know, reading up on the sort of, you know, the history of all of this and where this had had come from, I um, came across some um, from challenge, I think, from the former uh, treasurer saying, oh, is he going to, you know, if, if, if they win the election, is he going to turn up and deliver a budget with his yoga beads, which just shows, you know, the lack of understanding of what we're actually talking about here. And, you know, almost the contempt really for, you know, shouldn't a government's role be to, to, to support and enhance yeah. people's well-being? I can't, I can't quite fathom it. So I think there has been that big shift and hats off to the, hats off to the government, the new government for, for moving this forward. However, what I also see is quite typical of some of many other governments across the world who are dipping their toes in this sort of space of um, of, of well-being measures and so on, in that many of them are putting in place well-being measures, quality of life indexes and so on. But my question then is, so what? So what is that going to do? What's it going to achieve? Of course, you know, there's that thing, what gets what um, what gets measured, you know, matters and, and, and so on. Of course, that's important. But the government cannot stop there. They have to be able to explain how are those measures going to be guiding policy decisions? What questions are ministers going to be asked to consider when they're putting forward um, policy proposals, budget spending proposals and so on? What are the expectations in terms of delivering against those wellbeing measures? What's the aspiration? You can't just have a set of measures without saying where is it? What, what does good look like? And that's where this sort of vision for Australia is really important. So I think it's a useful first step. I would like to see the Australian government commit to having a national conversation with the citizens of Australia in a in similar way to what we did in Wales to say, what matters with you? What matters to you? The, what, what they've come up with so far is their best guess of what matters to citizens. We should ask citizens. The government should ask citizens what matters to them and what's the Australia they want to leave behind to future generations. And then maybe they should put that in law, but as a very minimum, they should be explaining how then what citizens say and the goals and measures that come from that are going to be embedded through the decision-making infrastructure in government because that is only that really that will drive that change. Mm. And I think we have a really good opportunity in Australia at the moment. Like you say, there's a newish government Um there's a whole lot of focus on the public service, you know, robo-debt and a few other things that have gone on recently that are horrendous and also provide an opportunity and there's real reflection on what reform is possible. And I, I'd love your thoughts on this because I think that's a real in for us because I worry that if it came from the environment side of things, it gets sort of boxes. Oh, that's a nice little thing, but stay in your lane. It's environment. Where if we're talking about what is the role of our public institutions, what is the role of exactly as you're saying, what is the role of government? Why are we here? (laughs) You know, that opens up a whole 
bigger possibility for cross-pollination. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I I suppose I've been, you know, in this podcast and and have been, and I'm sure will continue to be sort of critical of um, the public sector and policymakers and the way we do government and and so on until it changes. But, you know, there are also those challenges in the NGO sector and the voluntary sector as well. Um, You know, why is it, certainly in the UK, that very few people um, who volunteer and involved in environmental uh, charities, for example, come from um, poorer families or come from black Asian minority ethnic communities? You know, why why is that? Um, Why are we not making the kind of connections there? Um, what what are the ways in which we could be saying, you know, environmental NGOs could be saying, well, actually, you know, the stuff that we could do to help deliver a health service here, um, there's some really, really good stuff. So I think there needs to be a kind of coming together across the board. And I think whenever you pigeonhole anything into a particular area, particularly when we're talking here, you know, we're not talking about some, you know, technical sort of, you know, regulations to protect or prevent or, or, or what have you. We're talking about a framework for a country, a framework for action and a vision for a country. And that cannot be led by one sector um, or, or, or one, um, you know, particular interest group, if you like. Um, certainly the experience in Wales was that um, you know, and I'm, I'm sure some people have a different view to me, but but my view was, you know, certainly the experience was that it started its life um, as something that was being pushed by the environmental NGOs. And I think we will for, be forever grateful to those NGOs for getting it over the line. If, however, it remained as, oh, this is just about the environment, I'm not sure it would have had the same impact. I'm not sure the health board would have been thinking about it in the same way. I'm not sure that, um, you know, the school curriculum would be thinking about it in the same way, all of those things. So it's got to be um, something which is owned by by everyone. So from a government perspective, you know, probably the the the, the prime minister or the treasurer or, or someone that has that cross-cutting view. Mm. And it seems like it's something that's really taking off, you know, it seems like you're spending a lot of your time talking about this to a lot of people. Is that, do you think it's the idea that time has come? I mean, it has to really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been interesting because I, I, I spent two weeks in, um, in Australia back in April meeting, you know, ministers, NGOs, um, government officials, academics, and well, a whole range of different people and the kind of interest and, um, you know, and the, and the excitement about the potential for something like this in Australia was really palpable. And what I heard was what I, you know, often hear from different people is, oh my God, why don't we have this? It's kind of obvious that every country should have, um, should have this. But then also the coming together of people who are interested in the, you know, the well-being sector, people who were, who were doing futures, people who were kind of environmentalists, people who were focused on community engagement and, you know, community development and so on, could all see the potential of this. And when all of those people come together, I think that's when magic starts to happen. So so um, I've been working with the Centre for Policy Development, who are really well connected with government and are really pushing um, the government mm. in this di- in this direction. And, and they have um, brought together a number, I think there's about 80 odd organisations now who are writing a letter to the um, to the treasurer um, to say, great that you've got this far in terms of measuring what matters. Now you must go to go to citizens and hold a national dialogue and then you must show us how that's going to be embedded in our in our system of governance. Um, and I, my gut tells me that you might be pushing a, a, an open door. Um, what happens once you get into the national dialogue is a you know different matter entirely, but I think anything's possible. Hmm. Well, that's such a lovely way to finish. Um, but I do have one question just before we go, and it is a Friday night and there's, you know, life to get on with. Um, you've been talking about the whales that you want and you've been asked, you know, you asked people in Wales that. I have a question for you, which is what is the world that you want? Have you got a few things that, you know, you'd really like to see? Yeah, I, I suppose, you know, in some ways my answer to that question is, kind of a bit boring because I'm going to talk about governance but to me it's not boring I'm a governance um anorak in 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 some ways because here's the rub you know 
I get really excited as, you know, I'm sure you do and I'm sure many of your listeners do about, you know, the the possibilities of driving, you know, progress in particular areas and new ways of doing things. And, you know, how can we dismantle things um, that haven't been working and transform society in, in particular ways um, and so on. And, you know, sometimes you'll get these breakthroughs, won't you, in, in things like COP where, you know, big, um, you know, international agreement is reached about, you know, reducing deforestation or or, um, or funding for climate initiatives in particular countries and so on. And that's all great. The problem, however, is that when all of those countries go back to, to base, um, when this brilliant project over here is trying to get off the ground and scale the system within which it operates is still rotten the system is still short-term it's still disconnected it still acts in silos it still doesn't know actually what it is that it's trying to achieve and it's never asked anyone um, what that should be so for me my aspiration if every country in the world had something along the lines of a future generations act that is setting the foundations um, for other brilliant things to grow it's it's you know imagine it as a kind of you know a rich soil within which um all of these initiatives that we need to save the world and to give people hope and secure um the well-being of future generations that rich soil would enable um those things to happen at the moment um we've got something which is more akin to my rather beleaguered looking grass which has been um you know had an absolute shoe in from my two dogs and and and, and five kids and, and so on and you know there's something there around the whole world just having those really good and nutritious foundations. Sounds like we've got some work to do in Australia then to be at least part of that. So thank you so much, Sophie. It is we're so lucky to have had you visit and to to spend time with us this evening. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. postscript to this episode. Just after we recorded this on the 21st of July, the National Treasurer Jim Chalmers released his first National Wellbeing Report, Measuring What Matters. It's worth having a look and we'll put the link in the show notes. And while this is a step in the right direction, measurement actually means nothing if there's no pathway to influencing policy. Released late on a Friday afternoon, this feels more like a testing of the waters type approach to wellbeing. And I think actually really highlights the need for a national conversation and for a wellbeing approach that is legislated. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Muanina people of Lutruwita, Tasmania. I pay my respects to Palawa elders past and present and acknowledge that this land was never ceded. First Nations folks have lived on this land for time immemorial and have ways of thinking and acting about wellbeing that means they've cared for people and for country for tens of thousands of years. Mm-hmm.